Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast with Mike and Alexandra Foley. Where each week, we mix a bartender's guide with the lives of the saints to help you celebrate the feasts of the calendar with liturgically correct cocktails. Let's get started. Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast. I'm Mike Foley. And I'm Alexandra Foley. And welcome to our Holy Happy Hour Saintly Sippers. We have a very special episode for you, for we have a very special guest star. His name is Dr. Thomas Ward, and he is rewriting the script about Blessed John Duns Scotus, whom many Thomas poo-poo. But Tom Ward is here. To set the record straight, he personally convinced me, and he shall convince you. Alexandra? Well, I'm really excited because Tom was one of our dearest friends, as is his wife, Katie, who is here, but she is remaining silent. <laughs> and we're excited to do a cocktail for Dunscotus with Thomas Ward. Indeed we are. So let us begin in our customary way. Stay with us, O Lord, for it is getting towards evening. And bless our drinks and our conversation. Amen. Blessed Dunscotus. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. And his feast day is November 8th. So we are dropping this podcast a day early so that you may toast to this wonderful blessed. Let's do it. Where's my drink? All right. Well, we want to go to that right now? <laughs> As always, Mike. Yes, ma'am. All right. So the Foley's and the Wards have come up with a special cocktail in honor of blessed John Duns Scotus. And it has to do with the four regions with which he was familiar on his epitaph, there is a Latin poem. Dr. Tom Ward, would you like to read it to us? Sure, In lingua Mike. Latina. And welcome, Tom. We're yeah. so glad to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, as always, hanging out with the Foley's. It's always a good time. <laughs> Usually we try not to record our evenings together. <laughs> yeah, typically we don't have podcasts when I come over, but, uh, so this but is very I, can, unusual. I can roll with this. Yeah, We do spend yeah. a lot of time together. It's always, always fun, but we, we just decided we, we should share this with the wider audience because you are very fun to be with, Tom. The uh, tagline or the epitaph that goes along with Scotus is, um, Scotia me genuit, Anglia me suscipit, Gallia me docuit, Polonia me tenet. And roughly that's so obvious to me, but but just for the wider audience, why you translate it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Scotland brought me forth, England sustained me, France taught me, and Cologne holds me. So the Cologne there is Cologne, Germany, where Scotus was sent at the very end of his life. Supposed to start up a house of studies there, but fortunately didn't last long in Germany, and passed away. So that's where he's buried in the Minorite Kirchen in Cologne. All right, so in honor of this magnificent blessed, we have something called the dunce cap, mm. but we need to explain the name. Why the dunce cap? Well, it's pretty dated at this point, but we can, if you're of a certain age, we can probably all remember not using them in school, but hearing stories about or maybe seeing pictures of poor student in the classroom having to wear a goofy hat. Sometimes they're pointy hats, like a, like a birthday party hat, but, uh, but meant to humiliate a bad student. But like a gnome cap. Yeah. And yet the gnomes kind of embraced it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it comes from the, um, the, you know, these scholars used to wear these, these 
skull caps, you know, the sort of 13th century version of a beanie. But over, over, the, uh, over the centuries of artistic representation, they became pointier and pointier. And that's probably why we associate wizards' hats with uh, a pointy hat. But, but the reason why this particular kind of cap that was meant to humiliate students uh, is called a dun's cap is because in the early modern period, especially among the early reformers, uh, Dun Scotus became a really loathsome figure. They thought that his theological speculations were irrelevant, that he had all the wrong papist views. And so they associated being uh, dunsical, like Dun Scotus, with being stupid or, uh, or pointless or going off on rabbit trails. So eventually we got the association of being a bad student with being like Dun Scotus. And I have a feeling you wish to push back against that. Yeah, yeah. Dunce Scotus was not a dunce. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well said. In All right. That sense. So we have come up with a cocktail that honors the four regions from which he held. So for both Scotland and England, we have Scottish gin. I know. Like, Scotland is Scotch, right? But now they're making gin. I don't know what the Scottish nationalists think of that. Is it a betrayal of their heritage? I don't know. We don't need to ask them right now. But there is a marvelous Scottish gin. <laughs> and in typical Celtic fashion, none of the letters give you any insight into the pronunciation. I know. The guy it, at the liquor store was like, it's pronounced blah, blah. I'm like, what? So I look at this and like, but it's Karoom. Small batch Scottish gin. Spell it for us. C-A-O-R-U-N-M. Do that again. C-A-O-R-U-N as in Nick. Oh, N as in Nick. Sorry. <laughs> like, I will mention that the bottle is not quite half empty at this well, point, I, but, but it's a third empty. Well, it does it really matter? Because in Gaelic... It doesn't really matter. <laughs> to actually say it is actually Bob. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So we're basically mixing the Scottish and English debt that John Dunscotus had with this particular Scottish gin. So we're going to do two ounces of this marvelous concoction, which means eight ounces for our okay. four parties. Yeah, four guests. Now, the next part of the epitaph is Gallia me docuit, France taught me. And French vermouth is dry vermouth. So we have a marvelous Dolan dry vermouth. We're going to add more than just a dash. We're going to add more because his nickname is the subtle doctor. And the vermouth subtilizes the drink. So would you say you added an ounce and a half just now? Yeah, something like that. Or eight. Ounces of gin, okay. Yeah. Um, we're going to add a little bit of lemon bitters. Why? Because it complexifies the drink. That's my new verb. And uh, yeah, it just makes it more subtle because he was the subtle doctor. And then finally, <laughs> Colonia. How do we honor Colonia? So he didn't say Germania. It was Colonia. Cologne, Germany, was an independent principality. They were their own thing. 
and they were on the Rhineland. So we have a Riesling, which is a Riesling glass, which is a white wine glass. Colonia made tenet. Colonia held me. And so these white wine glasses will hold the concoction in honor of blessed John Dunn Scotus. I like that because that's actually where he's buried, right, Tom? It is. Yeah, he's still there. You could go see him. Well, his sarcophagus. He's in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom, tell us uh, why he's not a saint. I think that's a hard question. I mean, a lot of it has to do with how messy his texts were and, and, and are. So he... He became, in the centuries after his death, I mentioned already that, that the reformers hated him, which might be a good sign uh, for, for sanctity. But <laughs> So he, like, he died what? It was like 1309 he died? 1308, yeah. 13, I just yeah. looked it up on my phone, but I knew that totally. Yeah, you were, I mean, with, to get SCOTUS within one year is, is <laughs> amazing. give you a PhD. But um, no, he, he, he was, in Catholic circles, a very prominent theologian was was considered in, in high esteem for many centuries, really dropped out of fashion in the 19th century. Now, why he was uh, not canonized up to that point, I I don't really know. Um, but one one really nice thing that happened in the 20th century is that a commission was set up at the Vatican to go through all of his books, all of the books that were attributed to him, and try to figure out what was actually his and what was spurious. Mm. Specifically, with the goal of of figuring out if this guy was a saint, and so, so this in, was in the nineteenth century. You said, well, in the twentieth century 20th is when century. the the Scotistic Commission got going at the Vatican, and that that project still is not over. It's taking a long time, but the project was sufficiently completed that in the early nineties, in nineteen ninety three, Pope John Paul II uh, beatified Dun Scotus. And had this wonderful title, a pair of titles for him. He was, according to uh, Pope St. John Paul II, the uh, minstrel of the incarnation and the defender of the immaculate conception. Oh, lovely. So, yeah. so incarnation and immaculate conception. Yeah. So very Marian, but let's make a toast real quick before we... Indeed we shall. Blessed John Dun Scotus, the subtle doctor and defender of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception. Pray for us. Pray for us. Cheers. Cheers. Notice the nice sound of the Riesling glass. Mm -hmm. On this show, we don't usually have that nice kind of a clink. Oh. And this Scottish gin. That is delicious. Karum Mm -hmm. or Karum Ruhr is absolutely magnificent. It's complex. And smooth, just like blessed John Dun Scotus. Right. All right, Tom. He, he is known as the subtle doctor because of the, the difficulty of his writing, but at the same time, he also had a very simple style. Hmm. Um, and so that kind of complexity and simplicity really does capture something of Scotus's own method. Excellent. All right, Dr. Tom Ward, I'm so grateful that you are here because I had a rather conventional Thomist upbringing. And the narrative was 
that St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, frickin' nailed it and represented the high point of the Middle Ages. And then after him, a generation later, with John Duns Scotus, things started to fall apart. And in the narrative that I learned, which you have corrected me, uh, and I'm grateful for it, there were two things. He taught the univocity of being, as opposed to the analogy of being, which Thomas was very good at, and that he was the start of voluntarism, mm. which even Benedict XVI, who was a brilliant theologian, kind of reaffirmed in his Regensburg Address. Dr. Tom Ward, would you like to offer an alternative point of view? And also let's define some terms for, you know, anyone here who doesn't know all those terms. Yeah, so we're, <laughs> we're, in, we're in deep waters here. But um, yeah, so two, two huge issues, uh, univocity and voluntarism. So let, I'm going to try to keep this brief, but cut me off if I'm going to. But Just this, keep drinking. This, you do have uh, kids to pick up at some point. <laughs> He's a family man, six kids, you guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is a really nice break. Um, but <laughs> univocity, the way that philosophers or theologians talk about it, has to do with a, a theory about what our words mean or how they work when we talk about God. So as anyone, however Thomist you are or Scotist or whatever, as anyone will recognize, God is very, very different from any creaturely thing and from the whole universe of creatures extraordinarily different something. So how is it that our words, which seem designed to talk about ordinary objects, how is it that they get on to God? So Thomas Aquinas had this uh, view that our words can only uh, refer to God analogically. That is, not in exactly the same sense that we use our words when we talk about creatures, but not in a completely unrelated sense either. So for instance, if we say God is love, how does that? It, it would be something like this for, for Aquinas. You know, you might have uh, some idea in your mind of a very loving person, you know, a human being, you know, your mom or your, your spouse or whatever. And you get some accurate, good idea of what love is from a very loving person. But one point that Aquinas makes that is very deep and right is that the way that God is love is not by having this characteristic that's a quality that he possesses that you know maybe he gets more love maybe he loses it but no no no, no. instead God is love whereas even the most loving human being you can imagine he or she isn't love itself so right there, we have this massive difference between God and creatures. So Aquinas reasons that, yeah, well, the word love then can't mean exactly the same thing because we're using it to refer to this thing that, lo that is love itself, not some uh, feature that uh, something else possesses. So now, my mom shows me she loves me by making me Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> right, it seems like there's like it's a facet of love. There's yes. a show of love, but that's not what God does. It's not what God is. Yeah, God just just is love. It sees this. You might think of it as the the archetype of every instance of creaturely love. Now, Scotus 
completely agrees with Aquinas mm. about that, that fundamental difference between God and creature. And I think a lot of people don't know that about Scotus. That's right, yeah. They, they, they think that he blurred the differences. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They, sometimes people talk about, they misattribute to Scotus this view that is somehow like, there is there are these big uh, ideas or or properties like love and God has a lot of love and we have a lot less, but that there's this thing, you know, love that sort of stands above God and creatures. And the most conspicuous um, feature here that gets talked about the most is being itself. So God is existence itself, uh, the, the pure act of being, as the Thomists would say. Whereas every creature exists only in this derivative and participatory way with God. Mm -hmm. the, so that's all true. That's right? all true. Like that's, that Aquinas, being... Aquinas agrees with that. Uh, Scotus agrees with that. I think that's just sort of, you know, when we're talking about the metaphysics of theism, that's mm -hmm. just bedrock for Catholics. Mm -hmm. What Scotus is accused of doing is saying that God is not existence itself, but instead... God and creatures somehow share existence in common. Hmm. And what that does is it makes God not the ultimate fundamental reality. It yeah. makes something else like being itself, whatever the heck that is. So being becomes the top thing. Yes. And then God becomes a, a, a creature of being, yes. which is yeah. just the opposite of what it really is. Yeah. Now, if you really thought that, then then you would have a view that is completely incompatible yeah. with uh, Catholic sounds faith and philosophy. It sounds pantheist. Yeah. It makes God, you know, it kind of sort of flattens God out, puts yeah. him more on the level with creatures. Right. But I think that that reading of Scotus is fundamentally misguided and, mm. and uncharitable. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, Scotus is clear that we do have certain concepts or certain words that do apply both to God and creatures in the same sense. And that itself might be controversial, but he's very clear, always very clear, that he's not talking about some thing like being out there that both God and creatures share. Instead, he thinks we can form a, a simple concept of being, sort of apply it to God and apply it to creatures. And that's the sort of bedrock of intelligibility that lets us they construct arguments that reason from creatures to God. But none of that says anything at all about just how radically different God and creatures are. And when mm. Scotus goes on to actually carry out his fundamental metaphysics of theism, he is crystal clear that the difference between God and creatures is as different as things could possibly be. There's only wow. this minimal concept of being that yeah. really hardly has any concept content at all it would be the equivalent say of you know when we have a word like like thing you know of course when we talk about god we'll often refer to god with pronouns we'll 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 say that god is somehow a thing we'll, we'll go on to clarify that god's a, you know very different sort of thing but that's all scotus means is that we just have this way of of referring to God, and then what we go on to say about God, you know, ramifies into this massive, beautiful structure of God is the uh, 
uh, as existence itself and all creatures participating in God. And in that sense, he's fully in alignment with Aquinas. Wow. They just differ about these two terms, analogy, univocity. Yeah. Um, and it's a quite technical dispute, more yeah. like in philosophy of language mm-hmm. than in metaphysics or theology. Oh, yeah. And, and one of the things I've learned from doing theology is that there is logic, there's metaphysics, and then there's a grammar. And, and, and grammar kind of falls between the bar stools for, for people trained like you and me. But there is a grammar of things, and it's, it's a real thing. So by grammar, you just mean a, a language? A language, a structure, a linguistic ecosystem. And I, I don't know how to put it otherwise. Yeah. But it, it's, it's not pure logic. It's not just assigning meanings to signs. Uh, it's it's a structure and a a feel, and so uh, so it sounds like there's there's a grammar of log there's a grammar not of logic but a grammar of language that that can reconcile uh, Scotus and Aquinas. I, I think that's exactly right. You know, in in the maybe at certain points in the early modern period where you had distinctive schools of Thomism and Scotism and literally chairs of their respective thoughts set up at universities, you know, there you have um, incentive to emphasize the differences. Uh. But here in the 21st century, when we look back on what was going on at the end of the 13th and in the early 14th century, what should be much more prominent in our minds than the differences are the similarities. Mm. Just how much, call it a theological grammar, that... Scotus and Aquinas shared. Yeah. And it really is way more common ground. Now, if we want to start laying blame on people who um, are might be responsible for this dissolution of whatever this medieval synthesis was, I, I think if we look to someone like William Ockham, yeah. who was writing a couple of generations yeah. after Scotus, there I think maybe you have a pretty good case for yeah. someone who's really losing touch with that, that theological yeah. grammar that you're talking about. No, he was a baddie. Yeah. Okay, so for someone like me who's not a theologian, how would you what would you want to tell me or appreciate about Dunscotus? Blessed Dunscotus. Yeah, I mean one of the things that I think is sometimes hard for non-specialists to appreciate, partly because of Scotus's writing style, which is very dry. Like as dry as this London gin. (laughs) (laughs) Scottish gin. Scottish gin in the London style. But it is a very dry (laughs) writing style. I mean, Aquinas is downright flowery compared to Scotus. Mm. Good Lord, I've never heard that before. (laughs) Right. So that is a liability of Scotus. So, So, but given that background, I mean, one thing that I like to emphasize about Scotus is that he really loved Jesus and he really loved Mary. And even though he didn't have the rhetorical skills to express this very well, what he actually says about God's love for Jesus, God's love for Mary, their roles in the overall economy of salvation really is beautiful. We are talking with Dr. Thomas Ward, who is rewriting the script about our understanding of things. And we will return and ask the second bombshell question. All right, Dr. Tom Ward, you have 
convinced me of the so-called university of being. Can you speak to the charge that Blessed John Duns Scotus was a voluntarist? He privileged the will over the intellect? Isn't that kind of sus? Isn't that kind of Muslim? Voluntarism. Okay, so let's maybe define the term. Um, voluntarism, as you suggest, is a, is a kind of loose concept or family of views that refers to some sort of emphasis on or prioritization of the will over the intellect. Okay. So why is that bad, the will over the intellect? Here's why it would be bad if mm -hmm. you sort of lean too far in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. It detaches willing from reason, mm. and it detaches, and therefore detaches willing from the good. Okay, so are you saying that it's good to privilege reason as a Christian? Yes. All right, we are in agreement. <laughs> oh, thank yeah. goodness, we were all really worried about that. Scotus has this wonderful description of of God as a, a most methodical lover or a, or a most orderly lover. Wow. And the idea, idea there is that, you know, while God is not bound um, based on his knowledge of any facts about creatures to create them or not create them, or really do one thing or another for them, he is out of love for creatures. He creates them, does what is good for them, so this, um, what we might, we, I, th I think it's helpful to think of voluntarism as a spectrum. And then there's a question mm -hmm. about how far on the spectrum does voluntarism start uh, becoming tourism? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so if we look at SCOTUS, yes, there is this emphasis on divine willing, divine freedom. And, and specifically, this is the most important thing for SCOTUS, that God did not have to create anything. And this is actually what distinguishes him from the Muslim theologians like Avicenna, mm -hmm. who, um, from whom he learned a lot. Mm. But Avicenna and the, the Islamic philosophical tradition had this emphasis on divine determinism. Mm. And, and not even that, just but, but that not only did God determine everything, but that God's own actions were determined that the whole structure of the world couldn't have been otherwise. Now, later on, and this is what Pope Benedict was talking about, mm -hmm. there was this emphasis on God's freedom and arbitrary willy-nilly and all mm -hmm. of that. But, but Scotus was moved to adopt this view about divine freedom as a reaction against Avicenna's Neoplatonic emanationism. So he said, no, that... The, a kind of determinism that yeah. that for the Avicenna, the tenth century philosopher that inspired Scotus in some ways, he he'd completely rejected this determinism in favor of divine freedom. Mm. So would, that God had to do blank. That God had to do this, that, or the other for mm. creatures. For Scotus, God didn't have to create anything at all. So what fundamentally mm. explains why there's a world? God's love. Love. Aww. Yeah. God so loved the world, yeah. not just his son, but he just creation. Yeah. Creation itself. And yeah. all of us were loved into being. Yes, yeah. yes. I like that. And in fact, so with this most methodical lover idea, um, Scotus, I, I, I sometimes use this expression, pious imagination. I mm. think that mm. uh, Scotus had a very pious imagination. So 
what he, he imagines God, so to speak, surveying everything he could create, you know, at some sort of logically prior moment to actually making anything. And so he sees everything he could make, and he sees the soul of Christ, the human mm. nature of Christ with whom he mm. uh, becomes hypostatically united in the incarnation. And he sees that and, and loves that and wants to make a whole world in which the human nature of Christ can be the king. Oh. And so structures the entire universe mm. around that one thing. So that God, so that God in Christ could be preeminent in the universe. My gosh, that's beautiful. Kind of sounds like play. Yeah, like you yeah. know, God so yeah. loved the world, He wanted to see like this play. Yes, yeah. This, all humans. The realm play. and court yeah. of Christ the King. Yeah, that's beautiful. Oh, that's lovely. We are talking with Doctor Thomas Ward. Tom Ward. Yes. You have written a book. I it have. is called Ordered by Love, an introduction to Blessed John Duns Scotus, whose feast we celebrate on November 8th. Available on Amazon, by the way. Got a lot of good reviews. I've read it myself. It's very good. Yeah. It is it, it's actually written for the me's out there. It's written not for academics. Like this has been a very academic conversation. It's been very interesting, elevating, um, but your book is very, very clear, and it's very much ordered towards people who don't know him and who are not academics, and that I think well, is really thanks valuable. Thanks for saying that. That was the goal. Yeah, he's a hard thinker, no doubt, but I wanted to sort of distill as much that was for all Catholics as, as could be distilled from him. You like how I used distilled just now? I did. Well done, yes. my friend. Like much, well yeah. done. So, Dr. Tom Ward, what was your goal in writing Ordered by Love? What are you trying to do? Well, you, you started with this uh, standard narrative about Scotus, that he's somehow a baddie. Mm -hmm. And I've been studying Scotus now for almost 20 years. And over the course of my, my half, of, half a career, I've, I've come to think, as a faithful Catholic, that Scotus is not a baddie. He's a goodie. He's not the mm -hmm. bestie. Yeah. He's not the bestie. <laughs> but he's a goodie. Uh -huh. And he deserves to be, at the very least appreciated yeah if not admired and revered yeah and so i wanted to write something that uh, made scotus sing oh mm -hmm. i like that very much That's and lovely. you said he's not he's not a good he's not a bestie mm -hmm. um but that i i think that's sort of like the human experience that someone like scotus who has something really interesting to say he may not say it in the same key that aquinas does but he says it in a way that actually may be more relatable to different people, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, Aquinas is, is, is sort of a, a certain kind of cocktail. Yeah. And that Scotus actually is a certain kind of cocktail that may appeal to other people. And what I'd like that you're doing, as you said, you're distilling it and you're bringing out all of the great flavors of Scotus so that we don't lose him. Yes, exactly. And I, I feel like I've gained a lot from this, again, about the love of Jesus and the love of Mary. Such yeah. a lover. Yeah, yeah, he was. And, and you, you, you asked when, uh, when will he be canonized or, or why isn't he canonized yet? And again, I don't know the answer to that. But beatified in 1993, that was 30 years ago. We'll see what the next 30 years bring. Yeah. Well, and it, honestly, I don't want to flatter you because I don't like to do that to people, especially on our podcast, and I never do that to Mike. Yeah, indeed not. But I think that your work could go a long way and, and bringing him to light and uh, making sure that lots of people read him and see the value of him. 
So the book is Ordered by Love, An Introduction to Blessed John John Scotus by Thomas Ward, available on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> Did I say that right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a marvelous, it's a marvelous book. And Tom convinced me, even as a conventional Thomist, he convinced me that, no, he needs a relook. He, he's not the dunce. And he's not the voluntarist. And he's not the university guy. Uh, he's someone who deserves a new look. We are back with Dr. Thomas Ward. And the final conundrum is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. St. Thomas Aquinas, magnificent. Go to Thomas, say all the popes. He was brilliant. He was lovely. But got one thing wrong. He would not acknowledge the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And it had to do with a certain Aristotelian, Augustinian mix. He couldn't see how it was possible. The one guy who did was Blessed John Dun Scotus. And his work was so influential in eventually defining the doctrine. So too long, didn't read. Um, what you're saying is that Aquinas really didn't understand the Immaculate Conception, but that Dun Scotus comes along not even a generation later, and he really gets it. Tell us more, Tom. Yeah, it was theological consensus um, in Paris and Oxford and elsewhere that uh, Mary was cleansed of original sin immediately after her conception, but no one could quite see their way to immaculate conception, that prior to conception, there was no moment of her existence at which Mary was stained with original sin. So Scotus's basic pithy argument is that uh, God could preserve someone from sin in this way, that it is fitting that God would preserve Mary in this way. Therefore, God preserves her from sin in this way. Patuit, mm. decuit, ergo, fecit in the, in the Latin expression. Mm. I would say no, but just do it in English again. Yeah, God <laughs> could do it. It was fitting that he did it. Therefore, he did it. Yeah. yeah. I remember for me... Someone once said that to me, it was Scott Cleveland, that it didn't have to be this way, but it was yeah. fitting. It's fitting, yeah. 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 That the the vessel that was going to hold the incarnate Lord, wouldn't it be fitting that she would be um, kind of pre-saved? Yes. That she would be yes. immaculate, immaculately conceived? Like, just, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, and, and it's not like uh, some weird thing that, oh, Jesus couldn't become incarnate if he had a mom right. who was guilty of sin, you know, as though there was something icky. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. God can't yeah. overcome that. Right. Yeah. We know yeah. from the sufferings of Christ that he entered into all the dregs of all the nastiness that Indeed. we concoct. It wasn't that. It was uh, an honor to give the woman that he chose to be his mom. And frankly, it was a way of honoring himself, but not because he needed to, because yeah. he had to stay clean or something that but what really it's not yeah it's not it's, like a weird purity puritanism yeah it's just yeah. A, a gratuity yeah yeah and and i think the real innovation aside from the pithy expression the real innovation is that scotus thought well if we think about 
being saved from sin. Of course, we can think of that as uh, Jesus saving people who are already guilty of, of their sin. But we can also also think of it the way that, you know, if you're walking toward a cliff mm-hmm. and and you would fall were it not for my intervention, and I come along and say, hey, you know, and pull you back, yep. I've saved you. Yeah. So it's not as though, and this is, I think, a good thing to remember when talking to Protestants about the Immaculate Conception. It's not, it's not as though Mary wasn't in need of Jesus. Correct. It's Jesus's merits accrued on the cross, retroactively applied yep. to Mary prior to her conception. That is the reason why. So it's still just as much a work of Christ as his salvation of anyone else. Yeah. But it's this special mode of salvation that, as far as we know, um, has only been applied to Mary. That's right. That really hit home for me with the magnificent preacher that we had here in Waco, Father Robert Verrill, who was a Dominican. He still is, Mike. He still is. And, and this Dominican... One was defending the Franciscan teaching of blessed John Duns Scotus. And the big objection against the Immaculate Conception was, well, if she's preserved from original sin, that Jesus is not her savior. And he was the one who came up with a metaphor, drawing from blessed John Duns Scotus. When you fall into a ditch and someone pulls you out, they're your savior. But when someone pulls you right before you're about to fall into the ditch, they are also your savior. Yep. The savior of the Blessed Virgin Mary was Jesus Christ, but in a privileged way. Cheers to that. Yes. To the Immaculate Conception. To the Immaculate Conception. And to Order by Love, Tom's book, and yeah. to Blessed John Don Scotus, who is pointing us to the love of Jesus, especially the special understanding of the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, thanks for having me on. November 8th is his feast day, so be sure to toast with the dunce cap. And we will put it online, and we for, we forgot to mention the garnish. Alexandra, tell well, us about the garnish. I always like a garnish. Mike sometimes fudges on garnish. The garnish I could think of that was kind of like a dunce cap, which actually, as Tom had mentioned earlier, it kind of evolved over time to the pointy hat that we think of wizards, but I was thinking of a bugle. Yes. You can't really put that in a cocktail, but if you went out to the yeah, grocery the store hell? right now and you got me some bugles, I would not say no. Uh, I'm yeah, going right just, now. Yeah, a little a little dish of bugle chips next to your... Just say no, it. Just put it, put it on the end of your cocktail spear after you have confected the dunce cap cocktail. And you got your dunce cap. It's magnificent. I love it. All right, cheers. It's crunchy and delicious. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. Please get in touch with us via email at podcast at drinkingwiththesaints.com or on our Instagram page at Drinking Saints and find Drinking With The Saints book series at drinkingwiththesaints.com or wherever fine books are sold. The Drinking With The Saints podcast is produced by Back Row Media.